So we are, uh, we're going to try to finish the end of Revelation starting in chapter 19. Um, we do need to remember where we came from though. We started, um, we were kind of in, in 17, uh, identif- identification of um, Babylon, the great prostitute, and the beast. I did post some clarifications this week on Facebook for you guys um, on some of the stuff. I thought there was, there was just some of the conversation from last week that I felt like um, wasn't all that clear. Um, and how I explained it. So I tried to clarify that on Facebook. If you haven't, if you guys didn't see that, um, you can go check that out. And um, just maybe some clear descriptions on who we might think of as uh, the, the beasts, the beasts from the land, beasts from the sea, how we might understand those. The truth is they tend to meld together as counter-influences uh, to the people of God. And then understanding Babylon, I post some of that today. Um, I think it is fair for us to see Babylon as um, as Rome in their time, but the extension of which, or the type of ruler that comes forth from there, uh, is persistent through all time. Okay, those are kind of the ten kings that follow, and we said that kind of ties back to. Um, uh, Daniel kind of has the same thing. He's presented with these kingdoms, and he's sad because he recognizes that the, what is yet to come will kind of persist in their lives. And uh, and John kind of gets the same thing through Revelation. Um, and the background is important. Uh, in chapter 18, we saw kind of this whole whole praise, worship, um, condemnation dedicated to the fall of Babylon. Um, and I think, again, the, uh, the time that he spends on this is important simply because from a Rome or Babylon type of perspective, this is what's important to them, right? This is the tangible aspect they see of the persecution, of the social seduction and stuff that, that uh, the uh, Christians are seeing in Asia Minor. And so um, 18 means a lot to them. And so then that takes us into chapter 19, and there is rejoicing in heaven uh, based upon this. And so I think in Revelation 19, I'll read a little bit of it, and then we'll, we'll talk through it. It says, after this, and this is after kind of the events of uh, chapter 18, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So let's start, uh, let's start there. So they're praising God for the events in Revelation 17 and 18. Okay? Immediately after the fall of Babylon, we see these praises, this rejoice uh, coming from heaven. Um, over and over again, we see the word hallelujah used. Anybody know what that means? What's that? Close. It's, it's, a, it's a Hebrew transliteration for uh, praise Yahweh. So yeah, it's close. Um, so it means praise Yahweh, and they're saying it over and over and over again. Praise God for what has occurred. He says, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, the one thing that I want you to see as we try to finish out the book of Revelation is how things are happening in circles. Descriptions that we've seen earlier in the book or somewhere in the Old Testament are going to start coming up like rapid fire. Okay, um, Because, as we kind of talked about, the, the Jewish type of thinking is a circular thinking. We expect God to kind of act in similar ways as He always have, to have consistent ap- attributes. And also, and this is kind of the cool part when we get to um, kind of understanding the, uh, the end, of, end of creation and the new heavens and new earth, is that we start to see all these grand promises of Scripture are tied up and fulfilled. Like, it shouldn't surprise us that some of the stuff that He's saying in Zechariah and Isaiah is going to show up at the end when He's saying, I'm tying this all up. I told you this was going to come about. Your salvation is in me. These promises are true and just, and they will continue to show up as kind of the, as the whole understanding of creation coming to a close comes together. So if we see, uh, he says, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Uh, we've seen this before. 
We saw that chanted in Revelation 4 at the throne room. We saw the same thing or similar things chanted in Revelation 7 at the sealing of the 144,000 and in Revelation 12 when Satan is tossed from heaven. Okay? Power and glory and salvation belonging to God. It says, for his judgments are true and just. We've seen that before. They happen in Revelation 15 after the harvest of the earth and after that kind of wine press thing where, where God is trampling out those who have come against his people. Uh, and it says his judgments are true and just. We're being reminded that as, as scary of an image as that is, as, as harsh of a judgment that that seems to be, God is true and just. We see the same thing in Revelation 16. This is in the middle of the bowls. And uh, it comes after we get that image of those that are drunk on the blood of the saints. And he says, yeah, God's judgments are true and just. Um, it says, uh, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her morality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So this is not a new concept either. Like we've seen this through Revelation, but we also kind of see the tide. There's, um, there's a pretty close rendering back in Second Kings. So let's look at that. Um, it's 2 Kings 9.2 is what we're looking for. She's kind of is a, a stereotypical name that shows up everywhere. Jezebel. 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 And that's what this is going to be tied to uh, back in 2 Kings 9.7. Sorry, it's not a 2. Not a 2. This is why i got to stick to the electric notes. Electric notes. Um, 6. So he arose and went into the house, <clears throat> and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. So you see a similar similar thing, this concept of, of uh, these people that suffer for God, and prophets tend to be the guys that suffered for God, right? They brought a message that people didn't like, um, even God's own people didn't like, and uh, God's promising that I will avenge your blood, and that pops up back here after the destruction of Babylon in chapter 19, has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry, ooh, actually, that takes me back to somebody else, though, has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That, that responds to a particular cry that has shown up over and over again in Revelation. What is it? The cry of the, of the martyrs. Yeah. Yeah, remember, remember chapter 6, our martyrs under the altar. When, are you gonna avenge our when will you avenge our blood? God's done it. Their God has done it. The, the thing that has kind of persisted through all these judgments, and they're saying, all these people are dying in your name, and, and that part, if you remember back to when we first read that, they're under the altar and saying, when will you avenge our blood? And God says, not until more of you die. And it's like, what? I don't <laughs> like. It seems like a really harsh thing that God has said, but... If Revelation is doing something, it's we're fighting for, our, for the broader perspective to try to see things differently than we're able to see them, to see them how God understands them. And so now we see all that come together and here we're reminded and we see that God is the promise that God made that says, wear this white robe, you're, you're pure, okay? You're covered. I will handle this. And ultimately we, we get the proof that he does. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That is a, um, we see smoke is generally a judgment. Okay? And it's forever and ever. That's an eternal judgment upon Babylon and those like it who have opposed God and his people. Here we see these characters. Uh, we're going to lose them. They're going to be gone forever. Uh, but when they show up one more time, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, last time we saw them, they were where? In the yeah, they're in the throne room. Okay, Fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Um, amen has various connotations throughout Scripture. Generally, it's a let it be or so be it. Okay, Let it be. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Um, interesting is if we look at that amen, um, we've seen that in addition to being something that's like let it be or so be it, we also saw that as a title of Jesus back in Revelation 3.14, right? 
Okay? Um, we're going to start seeing those come up again, too. It's like all these various ways in which Jesus was described in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 are going to start firing up um, here towards the end of the book. Uh, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great, this is us. We, even as those that remain in this eternal reality of God having his judgment upon those who have otherwise persecuted the saints, we get to join in in that same praise because we're who fear him. Okay? All of us small and great. And we join kind of that rejoicing in heaven um, for the judgment that is already and also not yet. Can we talk about that concept? Like, the, like a lot of revelation floats on an already not yet concept. The, the war has already been won, right? Christ has already died. A lot of what um, revelation is bearing out is a consequence of what Christ has done on the cross. But it hasn't come to a full fruition yet. Um, uh, one, of, one of good example would be um, the difference between um, uh, the, when they stormed Normandy, right? Like the, the big turning point in the war was that. Okay? But it didn't actually come to completion until VE Day, okay? until they've actually signed the armistice. But like the tides had turned, the war was being won. Okay? That, that's kind of that same concept. Is we see these things that are true, but not come to full fruition yet. And Revelation kind of is always dancing in that concept of, we're showing that it's happening, it is happened or has happened, and it continues to kind of play out or continues happening. Didn't it happen at the cross? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the point, and we're going to see that when it comes to um, our understanding of um, Satan's binding um, is where a lot of that kind of comes to a head. Is like, when did all that happen? What caused his binding? What caused our understanding of of all these battles? We looked at Armageddon. We said they they gathered for a war, but nobody fought. It was just done because the war had already been won, and that all kind of ties back to the, the cross or the Christ event when Jesus is born, okay, uh, lives and then dies and resurrects. All right, continues marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.6 Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down on his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I like this part. This is where John starts having interesting run-ins with angels again. And uh, he can't seem to not commit faux pas around an angel. Okay? They're either trying to trip him up on what he's talking about. He'll do this again. Um, this will happen to John twice, where something will happen. John doesn't know what to worship, so he starts worshiping the angel next to him and embarrasses himself. Um, so the wedding separate. So here's what I think: is I think the the this passage is showing us that the temptations and oppressions of Babylon are the trials which God uses to refine the faith of the saints, okay, and make them ready for this heavenly city and the. I don't know, this culmination, this communion with God. When we say, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready, who's His bride? Yeah, yeah, that's the church. And it was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It's interesting um, that most of the time when you see this... um, the linen or the whites being handed out, like it's being given to people. Like God is handing it out. Uh, The Greek actually isn't ambiguous here. It is for the church to clothe herself. Um, so it's kind of an interesting perspective, um, but I think it ties back to our understanding of perseverance, right? If that has been the constant call that's been showing up through, Re- through Revelation is the perseverance of the church, even in light of all these things that are happening. It's even the judgments of God that come against humanity that are being used to refine 
okay, his church, then it's their perseverance through that that otherwise I think ties back to our understanding of clothing themselves with fine linen, bright and pure. And it says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And this will continue kind of this constant tug within Revelation that is like an understanding of how attention of faith and works, right? How those things go together. If the fine linen, what they're wearing is their righteous deeds. Now, this, this shouldn't otherwise augment our understanding, right? That you're not working your way into heaven. It's not how it works, okay? But is that as your state has changed, as your status has changed, okay, in your life of Christ, it does all call you to good works. It's reflection, okay? What you wear is a reflection of, what, um, of your state. Um, and I think that's kind of what he's getting at here in this, in this particular section. So if we just go back to Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their righteousness. So they're no, they were no longer clothed. They clothed the righteousness that had to be clothed as an inferior product. Well, we finally, when we step into eternity and this moment happens, we get our righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is back. Well, so what would be difficult about that is that their clothing that they're sent out of the garden with is made by God, right? Yeah. So, so, uh, so understood that he didn't. Um, when God made them, he made them naked intentionally, right? Right. And so, like they were still naked, they just they felt some shame around it, and God otherwise provides the clothing. So, like that would be that would be the. Um, it's tough to tie those. Although the understanding of nakedness from Genesis um, and their embarrassment from it, basically, as they as they find that comparison with God, I think does actually persist through Revelation. The understanding of clothes as kind of that theology behind that. Um, I don't know if you can tie those two as cleanly together as as quite what you're saying, but I, I think the trajectory is there, the path is there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, their eyes were open, so something was covering their eyes. God's righteousness to protect them. I think that... I, I'm still working on that. Yeah, I, 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 the, my hesitation is under the word righteousness itself. Tying, tying that to the specific thing, I think, is, is probably a little deep. Well, that's another change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, let's see, uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting here is he says, you must, uh, he, he says, we get the other beatitude, we're at the fourth beatitude, um, read, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he said to me, these are the true words of God, then I fell down on his feet to worship him, and he says, you must not do that, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's kind of an interesting, um, it's an interesting circumstance. Like, there's something weird about that. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that I'm completely... This sounds pompous, because then I say I'm not completely satisfied with the explanations. But that's a, that's a, a more difficult way of saying, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what he's getting at when he says, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Like, there's good options. Like, it ties to our understanding of, uh, of the Holy Spirit who moves the faithful to kind of give the needed testimony to the Lamb. I think there's aspects of that in there. Um, John's mistake is a little bit weird here, though. Um, understanding where he's come from so far, like his misdirection, maybe overwhelmed, maybe um, is he is he show is he perhaps showing some kind of of disbelief to where the angel has to tell him these are the true words of God? Yes, yeah, so that's what's kind of. I mean, is he just so? Because you know what? After all of this, I'm exhausted. Yeah, right. So has he has he seen? <laughs> You know, he has he seen, has he witnessed, has he just, you know, and now here it's all coming to fruition. He's seen the hallelujah. He has seen and heard this great multitude. And is is he overwhelmed? Is he is he not buying it? I, I wonder if... Because this just seems 
choppy and weird, like there's stuff missing from in between. And like you said, we don't want to read it looking for stuff that apparently we don't need to know. Oh, right, right. So what's the point? It's just like, don't get messed up in worshiping, I'm not real sure. So, so I wonder, there's a couple things. The outcome and your own, your own salvation in it instead of worshiping where your salvation is coming from? So I, so I wonder if, that, that's one of the things that, that kind of made sense to me. Like, it seems oddly placed. Although, just kind of a curious aside, for people that accuse the Bible, uh, um, like, one of, the, one of the things that I, that I like about Scripture is, like, it's, it's, um, it gives you plenty of ammunition if you want to hate it. Because John has no reason to include this. He's the doofus in this picture, is he not? Right. The guy that, that, that turns and worships an angel... When you know you shouldn't do that, he's the guy that wrote it, and he's like, no, I included that. That's exactly what happened, <laughs> and I will show that. And there's, um, I don't remember what I was looking at. It was one of the minor prophets, and like, I have a note in my Bible that I came across as I was looking through, and it was, uh, it was something to the extent of, for every, um, everything someone who hates God has accused God of, like of all the wrong things that God does, a prophet of God has accused him of it first. Like, if you look at some of the minor prophets, they're like, why do, you let you, why do you let all this evil happen? Why are you this? Why do you do this? How can you permit this? Like, everybody that's on fire holding the platform and yelling at God about something who hates him, somebody who loves God has also made the same accusation at God. The Bible's pretty transparent about its stuff, right? So if I'm, if I'm John and I'm trying to protect myself, I certainly don't put this in here. I look, I look ridiculous. So one of the things I thought of, though, John is kind of fitting a prophet. He, he's a prophet. Um, Old Testament prophets, actually this is pretty true for consistently for all prophets, is uh, sometimes God will use them as the message itself. And so is, is part of our understanding of uh, Babylon and what happens uh, through the marriage supper of the Lamb, kind of this comparison between the two, is people are not getting caught up worshiping the wrong thing. And like, or even things that are close to it. And so is it possible that he's using John here as kind of an indication is, see how easy it is to be fooled. See how easy it is, like when you're caught up in all these things, or you're worshiping the bringer of the message, because this is the angel that's kind of bringing this message, and John turns to him and and worships him for a second. Is it possible that he's using it as a bit of a sign here for us to understand that? That makes more sense than some of the stuff that I've seen so far, but I'm certainly not committed to it. Um, I yeah, I, I'm not solid with that. I think there's. I just have some questions about how that bears out in here. Um, we don't have a lot of time to spend sitting on it, but if you guys have some ideas around that, definitely uh, let me know. I'm, I'm interested in some more of it. I, I read you know, a number of people with some commentary on it, and like all of it seems okay. Um, I'm just, I wouldn't say that I'm feeling overly confident on all of it. All right. Uh, and then we move on. We transition to a rider on the white horse. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting in it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Actually, let's wait on that. So let's talk about the rider on the white horse. Who does this sound like? Jesus. Yeah, this, this really sounds like Jesus. It sounds like Jesus. I'm pretty sure it is Jesus. Um, we, we have him, uh, it's called the Word of God. Now, it's, I'm hesitant on some of the language in here as to whether he's actually trying to tie back to his own description of the Word of God in John 1.1, 1, 1. Um, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, so we have this kind of this heaven opens and this, this white horse 
It's a sign of victory. Okay, um, and he's he's already standing victorious. Okay, and again, it, it takes us back to he's. We're going to have another Kevin kind of an Armageddon part two coming up. That's just where we stopped. All these people are going to gather, and there's going to be no fight because again, the fight has already been. There's an already and not yet. The, the victory has already been won at the cross. Uh, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Let's look at some of these descriptions and see if we've we've um, seen them before. Um, so we have the white uh, of the horse. And that probably points us to the purity of Christ and also kind of the perseverance and vindication of the saints. I think that's every time um, they otherwise persevere, that's when they're handed the white robes, okay? So kind of, we think all that kind of bundles up probably in the white there. Um, faithful, he was described as faithful in Revelation 1 and Revelation 3. Okay, eyes like flames of fire was the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. Sword coming out of his mouth. Okay, his description in Revelation 1, also Revelation 2 when he's talking to um, the church at Pergamum. Okay. Now, when we talk about swords coming out of mouths, how are we supposed to understand that? What was it? He speaks in his heaven. Yeah, yeah. Would speaking the truth? Yeah, yeah. So, like, it's we, we think that how um, the force of his words okay, are so strong that we, we think of them as a weapon. Okay, that we, we said, uh, besides uh, Dave Herrick's, uh, he didn't love it, but, like, stands for the ability to protect or otherwise um, make war. And it's his, it's his uh, words that divide people. And so the strength of his words are, um, uh, are what's kind of demonstrated here. It's like we have violence, but it's coming from how he speaks. Okay? He's not, we don't see Jesus ever going around like wielding a broadsword. That's just not what's happening. He's speaking, and it's his words, more specifically the, the truth, okay, that is what's dividing people. It causes people to fall one way or the other. It hardens them or softens them to the things that he's doing. Um, and that is a consistent description of him. Um, we said uh, rod of iron. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That, that's already occurred in Revelation, but it also points back to a messianic psalm in Psalm 2. Okay? Uh, crowns. So I, I think we have a little bit of that parody thing coming on. You guys remember um, the, the dragon is wearing ten crowns? Okay? Or, or diadems. And Jesus has many. So we don't even get a description. But I think the intention is to say, basically, it's not, you're not counting. Um, as compared to the limited number of crowns or the authority or whatever that's showing up on the dragons and the beasts. Um, the name that no one knows is interesting. Um, so I, I wonder if uh, it's probably on the crown. It's probably on one of the crowns or the crown of his head. Um, there's debate among biblical scholars as to where this name is. I don't know that it particularly matters to me, except for it makes sense from a parody account because the blasphemous um, the names are showing up on crown. So from a parody perspective, it's probably on the crown. Um, but it's also not the first time in Scripture that we see this. Let's look at Isaiah 62, 2 to 5. Uh, Isaiah 62, and we'll just start at verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of your Lord and a royal diadem in the hand for, of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So this concept of God giving a new name okay, is not a new concept. Um, it ties back to Isaiah. Now, we've talked about names so far, though. Like, what, what, what does a name give us kind of the connotations of if you're the person that names things? Ownership. Yeah, ownership, okay, protection, um, and also responsibility, okay? I name my children. I'm responsible for those kids. That's, A, I have to 
They belong to me, but I also am responsible for them. So yeah, and he's saying, I'm going to give you a new name, um, which, which will tie back, I think, some, a little bit at least, to our concepts of new creation. Okay? Things, um, it, is, it is worth what it is that he's producing to even give you a brand new name, even beyond the people of God that you've been kind of functioning under, or Israel that you've functioned under so far. Um, which also, I think, ties us back to if your covenant was through... Um, was through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and stuff. Um, if, if you have a new agreement between you and God, um, that also has, is kind of retitled in, a, in our aspects of a, new, uh, of a new heaven, new earth, and kind of a new world. It says, his robe is dipped in blood. Whose blood is that? Everybody's, Everybody's blood. Look like a chainsaw massacre answer. Custis? Yeah. So there's multiple options here, right? Um, could be... He, he was the guy, Jesus was the guy described as the person that's in the treading the wine press of the fury. The guy, you know, where the big blood up to the bridle. So it could be the blood of his enemies. Okay, could be. What other connotations might blood on his robe symbolize? What was it? Martyrs. Uh, could, be, could be the um, like a connection with the martyrdom. Okay, the blood of the saints. Okay. Could be his own blood. Yeah. Yeah, it's tying back to his sacrifice on the cross, right? Um, I, that, that's where I lean. I think there's a, any one of those, frankly, is viable depending on where you're going with it. But like, I lean towards that um, because like, that's the last time we saw a victorious Jesus sitting on a throne was a slain lamb, right? Okay, lion, lion of the king, lion of Judah, and then it's a slain lamb sitting on the throne ruling. And then we have this victorious Jesus with his robe dipped in blood. That's kind of the same, similar connotation. So that's how I would generally understand that, um, which also helps us understand his, his victory, standing in a, in a white robe, standing victorious as if he's already won the battle. Well, the blood on his robe kind of takes us back to when that battle was won. Um, but those other two, I, I think, are actually in play as well. I don't think they're off the table. Go ahead. I was just thinking, whose blood is more valuable? Yeah, his definitely would be, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. If he's adorned in all of this... In all of his greatness, and that would just fit. Right, right. That actually plays into the picture of a conquering Jesus way better than some of those other two things. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree. Blood doesn't fit with swords and fire and diadems and all of that. Right, right. And in the context, like we're coming from the rejoicing in heaven, it's kind of a victorious, you know, path here. Um, to go back and re-understand um, those that he treaded on the wine press, although it's part of his description, I just I think it makes more sense that it's that it's his blood. Um, okay, good, good. Uh, let's see, faithful King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Have we seen that before? No, no, no. I'm just kidding. Yes, we have. It was, uh, Seventeen, Revelation seventeen. Um, just as as he was dispatching with the uh, prostitute um, in seventeen fourteen, says they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. Again, that's what kind of like blood on the on the robe. For he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So yeah, we have seen that before. So we're kind of that image is coming back up. Um, 17, it's a great, it says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. I know we're moving quick, guys, but we got a lot to get through. So um, if you want to debate this later, you can run me down in the hallway. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, uh, and he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the, oh boy, flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. 
And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Okay, okay. So we've seen that before, though. We've kind of touched on this dirty bird business. Do you guys remember where? And it's not in Revelation. Daniel 7. Oh, Dan. Two points for a wrong answer, but you're on the right trajectory. Okay. Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel 38 and 39. Okay. Well, I was going to say Isaiah 62, because if you go another couple of... Another couple of um, Lines? Stanzas? Sure, like, <laughs> it talks about eating of Jezebel's flesh and now... Uh-huh. And, okay. What did you say, Ezekiel? <laughs> Ezekiel uh, 38 and 39 is the broad context. Um, specifically, we're probably looking at Ezekiel 39, 17 to 20. Um, we won't go back and read it, but like it's, it's basically the same thing. Um, it's the opposite of what you'd expect. Normally, I sit down and I eat the bird. Uh, he said, hey, great kings, the bird will come and eat you, and I'm calling them in. Um, so it's eating the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. He's, per- he's taking down specific groups of people here. Um, I think they, actually what's interesting, if you look back in 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, it also has the same concept of, uh, of a new name. Okay, a revealing of God's divine name where his glory is then revealed and his saving presence is known to Israel. Um, it happens in both of those things. And so um, I think that's kind of what's happening is this great, Judgment that is happening upon um, all these all these people that claim to be mighty and they're allowed to gather. This is a recapitulation back to our Armageddon story, right? Okay, he's telling the same story again with a different focus. This time, as opposed to previously, we were pointing to the dispatching of Babylon. We're going to finish out our chiasm uh, or, or keep it moving. Is we need to get rid of our two beasts, and that's exactly what happens. Same thing. Everybody gathers. There's going to be some sort of war. The two beasts are there, and then God will deal, do away with them. Um, notice that it says, they gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Uh, the beast is captured. The false prophet um, is also captured. And these two are thrown alive into the lake of fire. No battle. Okay? No fight. They're just there. They gather. God grabs them. Jesus takes care of it, and they're, they're done. Um, Jesus does this. God's armies don't actually fight. It, here's the deal. Is it, do you guys remember anybody being vacation Bible school or something, and you're talking about being in the Lord's army? Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a few songs that talk. Now, here's the, they don't really do anything. We just stand back and say, look, Jesus. And then Jesus does all this. He takes care of all this business. We're never kind of involved in the dispatching of people. We're not really involved in violence. We're the ones that die. But that didn't make the VBS tune. The VBS folks don't go, Lord's army, whammo. You just kind of die for it. Um, but always, always in Revelation, um, the people of God actually don't do any of the, any of the fighting. It's always at the hand of God um, or, or in Jesus in this circumstance. Well, it goes back to the sword of the mouth. He speaks it and it happens. Yeah. That's all the way Genesis 1. He spoke all this was put in existence. He doesn't need anything else. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's like... Um, is with the power of his voice, um, which we've talked about already, like, that's why it's interesting, you're right, Genesis, he speaks creation into existence. It is his truth that otherwise divides people. It is his word that otherwise causes these to be done for. Um, and it's, it makes that all the more interesting that you see that distinction as word of God. Like of, of all the things that God could use to communicate who he is, what he wants, and the power, it is through the person of Jesus that that is done. Um, it, it's interesting to think that God could have communicated the things about Jesus in 
a lot of different ways, right? But he specifically sends him on earth for the sacrifice, but also to live uh, and to provide an example. And so it is that which the creator of the world has decided to communicate to his people through that word that he's otherwise shown as Jesus Christ. That's a very cool understanding of how God deals with his people. When he could have done it, I mean, he could have just shouted it. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which God could have done the things that he's done, but he's, create, he's decided to send the, his actual message to his people through like an embodied person of Jesus Christ. So it's very cool as you trace kind of that understanding of power of his word uh, through, uh, throughout the Bible. Let's see. So the gathered, the um, enemies of God gathering to make war. That's um, that's pretty consistent in the Old Testament. Okay, Zechariah 14's got that. We saw that in some of our Ezekiel passages, some of our Isaiah passages. Um, people are gathering. There's no combat. Uh, beasts and false prophet are done away with. We're on. One, we need one more to go. Right. We have to. He hasn't dealt with Satan yet. Right. So we should expect another recapitulation. If we said he continues to tell the same story to to deal with the different parts of our chiasm, and we've dealt. We said uh, we had. Babylon, two beasts, Satan, or uh, excuse me, other way around. Satan, two beasts, Babylon. He's dealt with Babylon. He's dealt with two beasts. We should expect another recapitulation so that we can see how he deals with Satan. All right. So that will become important as we transition to chapter twenty because that's where all our problems start. This is where we, we make denominations and we get out the fists and the brass knuckles and we talk about years and things like that. So uh, expect another recapitulation of this story. Uh, they were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Here's the thing. Uh, and if, if you're the type of person that carries the bin might potentially be a heretic, this is going to go in your, in your notebook, okay? Um, John has been extremely figurative in the book of Revelation, all right? I don't know that I have the right, if I'm reading this safely, to commit to the concept of sulfur and burning fire in my understanding of what eternal hell is, okay? Now, it's, this is certainly designed to control our understanding of what it is. It's not a pleasant thing, it is full of God's judgment and your permanent separation from Him. There is no doubt about that. There's no scriptural room for it to be anything but that. Okay? But if much of what He's done has been figurative to this point, okay, I, I don't know how I can then front load specifically His descriptions of eternal torment and hell to be literal information. Okay? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Okay? It very well could be that. I just don't know that I, don't have, that I have room in Revelation to commit to that. Was that a no? That doesn't make sense? Yeah, but it's not. Um... What do I mean? <laughs> I think that's true. What you say about how your teeth is when you're down there, like there was something you said. Oh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, yeah. That's scary to me. Like, yeah, yeah. Down your teeth real hard, like. Yeah. So, and so the the point is not to say that um, that I don't think there's an eternal separation from God that contains elements of His judgment. Like, again, that Revelation is pretty clear on that. Um, it's just, we've kind of baked in some of the literal descriptions here um, when we see he's been figurative for most revelation. You know what I'm saying? So it's definitely something like that. I just, I don't know that I can front load and draw you a picture and say this is exactly what it's going to be. That just hasn't been our path. And So there, heretic <laughs> notebook, write it down. Does it says word, maybe not fire. <laughs> does the word alive add any, any weight to it? So, I would think that's more disturbing than... than where you're being thrown into. I think it's an amplification, certainly, yeah. right? Because we're alive. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he's amplifying the picture to make sure to say that they're alive versus something separate from that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Not like you're going to die in this battle, and, and that's it. Right. Right. It's it's a. Die and you're dead. Have you ever stood under the judgment of God before? Have you ever felt that wrath? I have not, sir. Yeah, it's not very pleasant. Oh. And it could burn. 
Yeah, it could be a soul burn. Yeah. I think when you're talking about this, I think anything outside of God, outside of God's comfort, is going to be. Yeah. Consuming judgment fire, like we've, we've had, like you alluded to, in all this revelations that fire brings judgment. I think you got to think this is a constant judgment of, oh my goodness, I, I missed. Yeah. I missed. I miscalculated. I chose the wrong side. Right. And yeah. You just, it's going to be something you'll burn. You know, if you if you ever had anxiety, if you ever had anxiety, yeah. anxiety, you just go, oh my, oh my gosh, this is going to consume me. I'll never get away from it. Yeah. That would be. The yeah. Of that would be. Awful. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is like um, it's a picture of something that, that's probably worse than what we can understand. Um, but yeah, so like, but the pictures of if we were to, if you were to try to draw this out, we're probably, we've probably got the wrong path here. That makes sense. Okay, cool. Yeah, like Lazarus and the um, and the rich man. Like when they say like he was asking Abraham to bring him the water. Like I just feel like it's hot too. Like, but I think it's a soul burn. Uh-huh. What you were saying, like, but I just think it's real hot though. Well, you're trying to make it undesirable, so you don't want to go there. Yeah. Although, like, I think what what you're... All right, I'm going to touch this, and then I think we're going to let it go. Um, so I, I think our understanding of what um, hell is, 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 um, is I, don't, I don't think hell is designed to be something where you're like, hey, I don't want to go there. I'll, I'll take a safe bet on Jesus. Right? Like, Jesus is the compelling story. Like, where you, if you end up separated from him, that is the state of your condition. Is like of all the things that are attributes of God that, that help us understand who God is and His character, His love, His care, um, like His His companions, His communion with His people. Forever separation from that, like that's what we're talking about, right? Hell is the antithesis of God, not the things that's supposed to scare you over to Jesus, right? It's simply the absence of God and His attributes. So I, I think, and frankly, that's much deeper than I think even the picture we have here of all the uh, all the support and love and, and things that other, and grace that undergirds our relationship with God. If you pull all that away and you have an eternal existence of un, of a cognizant understanding of that separation from God, yeah, that very much seems like a hell to me. Okay, and that I think is the picture that we're trying to. And, and, and the, the fire makes sense in the. We'll, we'll watch this, but when we get into a new heaven, new earth, we have this living water that provides refreshment, and then you have the parchedness of our Lazarus man, you know, who can't who can't be quenched. Um, so the Lazarus story is interesting about whether that is supposed to be a, a, a literal figurative. I think that's actually much more debatable than Revelation is. Revelation is almost certainly um, pictures. That Lazarus story is actually is interesting in that regard, though. Like I'm not I'm not totally convinced that that's not supposed to be more literal uh, in that means, but. All right, moving on. Uh, the rest were slain. Uh, remember this, okay? The two, the beast, um, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Who's the rest? Yes, it's got to be everybody else, right? So, like God's people are taken care of. This was all those that were trying to make war against him. Okay, beast, false, false prophet are done, and the rest were slain. We should be out of people, yeah. Mm-hmm. We should be out. All right. That's going to lead us into chapter 20. Welcome. Um, I will read a little bit of it, and then we'll dig in. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Actually, I'm going to stop right here. You know what's interesting? Then I saw, then I saw, and I saw, and I saw, really depends on your translation. And frankly, a lot of um, it depends on your editor as to whether, they, <laughs> whether they're a, a premillennialist anomalist or postmillennial. Basically, when does this thousand years occur and should we understand it as a literal thousand years? Um, so I can tell you the rough understanding of what the editor of your Bible thinks as to whether it's chapter 20, they start that with a then or with an and. Because um, the Greek word chi can be either one. 
can be either one. Most of the time, it's an and, okay? And we've seen this all over the place. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw. He's moving, okay, from image to image, but it's not a chronology, okay? We've seen that. Things that we know are recapitulations. He's telling the same story. It's an and I saw, and I saw. It's not a then. It's not going from one to the other, okay? This is a then in the ESV. It's a uh, and, I think, in the NIV, old NIV. So anyway... Just, just know that there's a little bit of, um, that, that word can actually be either one, uh, depending on what you think is going on here, people will, will change that, uh, that opening one. All right, then I saw an angel, I'm going to go with and, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. That's big. That's the truth bomb right there. He's got Satan locked away, and then he must be released. That is a, um, it's like a godly imperative. It has to happen. Okay? Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Very good. Split the room. <laughs> this is where the battles begin. Um, all right, so let's, let's talk a little bit through what we're looking at in Revelation 20. Um, like I said, this is where all the millennial talk comes to a head. So if I can give this to you real quick. So premillennials would believe um, that Christ returns for a thousand-year reign on earth. So before the thousand-year starts, Christ returns. He reigns on earth for a specific thousand years, and then he comes back for the, I suppose what would be the third time um, by that point, but that would be, that would be the end. Um, there, there's some, and there's a lot of variations within this. So um, if, I'm, if you believe this and I'm striking it not quite right, just understand I'm being broad intentionally. Um, postmillennials would say there's a thousand year reign. Jesus comes after that. And then all millennials would say this is not a literal thousand years. Okay, that's your general descriptions of your millennial positions. Okay, what's that? Pan. Pan, pan millennials say it'll all pan out in the end. I don't want to fight about this. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's talk a little about the predominant. We're going to focus on premillennials because, frankly, that is the um, that's uh, I think makes most sense if I were to believe something uh, different from what I think. I think um, premillennials makes more sense. Um, here's what they they think that Christ will reign on earth um, and for a literal thousand years, and that Satan's binding happens during so he's bound during this time, and then, frankly, uh, the, the way that it would work out is that after the thousand years is done, Christ returns, then Satan is unleashed, um, and then has to be dealt with. Okay, um, so here's some issues with the under, with that understanding, and that's that's the predominant rapture thought too, right? Christ Church is raptured out of here. He comes and reigns on earth for the thousand years, and there's basically another end, which would be second, and frankly has to be third coming. Um, here's some issues with this. So first of all, when he talks about um, 
ruling for a thousand years, there's no context for us to say that that's on earth. Like, it doesn't say he rules anywhere on earth. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, they have, uh, this has the context, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. We have not come across an image in Revelation where there was a throne attached to God that was not heaven. Okay? There's no concept of an earthly throne anywhere in Revelation. So, if he's to be ruling on earth during this time, like a direct earthly rule, it would have to be the lone time. Now, um, generally people would write that off and say, well, then it must be in heaven. But I, you know, I don't know, once is enough in the Bible for me. Like, the Bible can say something once and it can be true. I just, I probably have to have a, a right reason to understand why I think he's ruling on earth. And I, I don't know that there's a lot here to give me that. Um, throne would generally put me in heaven. Okay? Um, secondly, if I'm looking for a thousand, a literal thousand year count, what's the problem with that? Nothing else has been without yeah. a literal count. Yeah, nothing in Revelation so far has been a literal count, Right? Right. Nothing. Otherwise, why are we studying? Because we're not going. Yeah, right. this wouldn't matter to us anymore. 144 is already <laughs> decided. Right, right. 144 is done for. Like we have, we have, we got sevens, we got tens, we got twelves. Okay, we've seen a lot of symbolic numbers in here. If I'm going to treat, this is one of our guiding principles. If I'm going to treat a number as literal, I need a reason why. And, and the question is, why, if every number here has been figurative, why is the thousand years literal? And I don't see anything here that would require me to treat it as literal. Okay. Um, we also see thousand thousand is a non is a figurative number isn't new biblically either not just in Revelation um, we see that in Psalm ninety that's where he says um, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills right again that's not a specific he doesn't own cattle on a thousand and one okay it's just a figure of speech that means all hills okay um, and Second Peter three eight for a day is like a thousand years a thousand years is like a day you guys want to get into trouble for a guy trying to predict the end of the world he's generally yanking that verse out okay. His understanding of creation days or something has got him to think one equals a thousand, and so I'm going to add a bunch of stuff up. All right, Peter's not giving a literal count there either. It's a figurative notion. Okay, God's days aren't like your days, just like His ways aren't like your ways. Put that on a bumper sticker. That's a freebie. Second, Second Peter three eight. Okay, so a thousand years is a figurative thing. Isn't a new biblical concept. Um, also, the second second coming imagery largely isn't found in here. Okay, in this particular section of Revelation, our understanding of how Paul kind of describes second coming stuff, okay, doesn't really exist in this part of Revelation 20. It's, it's, just, it's not in here somewhere. Um, and I would expect, if we, were, if we were to anticipate this as our second coming to kick off a thousand year reign, maybe we could have anticipated that. Okay, just a thought. Um, question, as we go through, if this is happening during the thousand years, we see Satan is released and it says, we'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Now, what's our problem? What's our problem with that? Satan is, so, so we had um, the beast and the false prophet are dealt with in chapter 19. If it's a logical progression, okay, if this is chronology, okay, angel comes down, thousand years starts, Satan is bound, Satan is released, he goes out to deceive the nations. What's our issue? Everybody's dead. Everybody's gone already, aren't they? Weren't they taken care of in 19? The rest? That's everybody. I would say the rest. Yeah. So if this is supposed to be chronology, which is generally tied into our understanding of a literal thousand years, okay, we're not because we're not retelling a story, I don't know who he's deceiving. Everyone was already taken care of in chapter 19, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have a problem. We've got to figure out who, who he's actually deceiving. Um, this also implies something that I'm not real comfortable with. It implies that Christ is not reigning now. Okay? It implies a lot of our, the theology is baked into this to say that Jesus Christ is not reigning on the earth right now. 
Okay? But Matthew 4 says, Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 12, he says, if I do signs and wonders, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon it. Or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? That's what he's doing. He does those signs and wonders. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? You have to kind of bake into the thought that, that uh, the kingdom actually hasn't quite come yet because the thousand years hasn't started. Okay? I have a problem with that. I think that's a, I think that's a, that's a biblical problem. We'll talk about that more when we get to um, Satan's binding. Okay? So, do we understand our issues with reading it from a chronology standpoint? I, taking this as a literal thousand years seems to be betraying our figurative use of stuff all the way up to this point. Being able to look at this as a chronology from 19 to 20 presents us some serious problems because everyone was already taken care of. So I don't know who Satan is deceiving. But, what, but I said something, though. I said we were missing part of the story from a recapitulation standpoint, right? He hasn't dealt with Satan yet. So if he's telling kind of our Armageddon part three here, retelling the same story that we've already dealt with Babylon, we've dealt with false prophet and beast, and now we need to deal with Satan, maybe this makes a lot more sense, okay? If our thousand years is our same, same time frame as our time times half a time, 1,260 days, okay? Three and a halfs. It's the time between Jesus' first coming and ultimately his second coming, because that's how we're going to mark time. Then this actually starts to make a lot of sense. He's recapitulating. He's telling the same story. Satan is coming out. He's deceiving people. They're gathering for a big battle. He's ultimately dispatched. Sounds like the exact same thing that happened to Babylon. Sounds like the exact same thing that happened to false beast and prophet. And it makes sense in our chiasm. He's dealing with people in the same way, retelling the same story to deal with a different enemy. Okay? Recapitulation here makes a lot of sense to me. Except for, here's, here's the problem with our, um, this, this would generally be called the amillennial perspective, which is say, um, it's not a literal thousand years, it should be, a, it's a figure of time frame, okay? Is dealing with the binding of Satan is very difficult here. Because there's a concept of time in which he's bound and then, like, let loose, but how does that fit within this whole concept, okay? Because in the first, what we're recapitulating, mm-hmm. he was taken care of before, it was done. Um, well, you had everybody gather. He gathers. They, all of the, our enemies have gathered nations. Babylon did it. Beast, false prophet did it. Satan does it. Gathers them for battle. The numbers like sand of the sea. And they marched up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp. Then fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And the devil at the same time. So it's, it's consistent. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty consistent. But his binding is very difficult for me. That's a difficult deal. Because now I have to... We say that he was... Uh, they seize him, he's bound for a thousand years. That implies that he's under some sort of control for, for that time frame between Jesus' first and second coming. And then he's released. And how am I supposed to understand his release and what happens from there? Yes? Uh, I know this has got to be a stretch, but could it be that the Lord being just bound him for a thousand years and even though we all think that... Uh, the devil is the evilest thing that's ever come across. Uh, maybe that is a thousand years being bound was just. And then he, he did his time, and, and now he's free. And then he shows his true colors again. He didn't repent. He didn't, uh, didn't make any change of heart. So, so maybe, a, um, uh, maybe that time of binding, it, whether literal or non-literal, uh, is the right reaction to his actions so far. And then his penance has been kind of done, and then he's released again. Is that, is that the thought? Yeah, Maybe? I wouldn't put that out as <laughs> true. I mean, I'm just, that's just the yeah. 
Here's the thing: is like that type of thought process. It probably belongs in this realm um, because it's a dif- it's a difficult thing to understand. I've got a, like I I actually wrote down what I consider a very implausible idea, but it popped into my head uh, a little bit earlier. And I'll tell you what it is, kind of after we go th- through this is thing. Satan given a chance to repent and this go to your room and, and think about what you've done, and when you're done, come back out. We'll talk about it. It's possible. You keep saying metaphysical. Is that what you, I hear you say that twice now, right? <laughs> I, I have said it twice. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if, if Satan would come to, if God would bring Satan and say, stop, mm-hmm. and we're saying he'd been bound. Okay, so his spiritual forces have been bound. If it's a moment, if it's a thousand years, they've been bound for that minute, and everyone can have some clear thinking in their lives. I don't know that it has a thousand years. I, I, I can't say. Cause right. I, but I'm saying... When you bind Satan, when you pray to bind Satan, you're binding his action, his work, in your mind and on your soul. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a matter of a moment in time. A moment of time without Satan bothering me would be the Holy of Holies for me. Right. You know, so I'm saying it could just be a slap of a moment. Right. That he's bound and everybody goes, oh, I understand now. Right. They're clear. That's, that's just... Okay. Uh, I got it. And so I think, here's what I think. Is I think the binding of Satan fits, fits that path. I think it fits our understanding of some of a sense of relief of some of the things. So let's let's walk through the thoughts on Satan's binding. So um, the word for bound. Anybody, anybody run in the Blue Letter Bible? You got it, April. So um, I kind of want to look at this. Where is? Oh shoot, I'm recording with mine. So the the Greek word for bound there is deo, um, and it carries the same connotation as um, um, when Peter's in prison. He and he he's bound together. Okay, or there's um, the the demoniac and the was the the Gerizines. Okay, okay, he's he nothing can bind him. As a matter of fact, that's that's that same word is used for someone that can't be, uh, be bound. And the chain is the same thing. The chain that's used here, it's a halusis, um, halusis. Uh, is the great chain that's used to bound Satan. So that same word is what's used to describe the demoniac, um, unable to be bound. So what's interesting here is like, this, is, this obviously has to be figurative because the same chain that won't bind a demonic uh, possessed person elsewhere in scripture is what is being represented here as being able to bind Satan and keep him there. That doesn't make any sense. Like the power that otherwise is causing him to the uh, demon oppressed people to be able to break free is supposed to otherwise keep a non physical being like Satan. Go ahead. Is that the same word? Same word. No, 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 but it's the same word. So it's, it's describing the same chain, and it's used, the same word describes bound in both circumstances, right? So, so what I'm saying is, is that, like, obviously, this has to be figurative already. There's no way that we can understand these two things as consistent if the d- demon oppressed people can break out of it, but Satan cannot, okay? It's some sort of limitation. Go ahead. Well, I don't, I don't know that that's the correct understanding because it, the word just means a, a bond, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Well, bound does. Chain is not. Chain is a very specific... It's like manacles. It's a very specific word for manacles or fetters. So, so this demon could not be bound with earthly chains... The, the, so the demon, like the, yeah, the, the like demoniac, the Gerizim demoniac. Um, so the, yeah, that's, that's what they can't be bound with. It's that same word, halusis. Yeah, the same word. Yeah. I don't know that it's, it's the same force. It's describing the same thing. I, so the, the point, though, that, that's the point I'm trying to make, though, is like, this can't be a physical manacle on Satan, right? That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense in the context to assume that you've bound what is in essence a spiritual being. 
Do you understand? Does it mean like he limited what he can do? So yeah, so I think that's the point, and so that, that's that's what I'm getting at though is like we, we I think we need to understand Satan's binding a little differently than we otherwise understand like a prisoner's being bound when it comes to like the demoniac. Are we still not we still not uh, saying we saying different things? Okay. Um, the way this reads in the blue letter is that Satan is said to bind a woman bent together by means of a demon as his messenger, taking possession of the woman and preventing her from standing upright. Yeah, so I, so in that in that context, it's used more distinctly as the binding of the woman to him, as opposed to like a physical binding, which is otherwise. But that's that's coming off of that deo. Is it deo or deo? Deo, yeah. deo, yeah, yeah. So 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 let's let's talk about potential understanding of binding. Okay, um, first of all, binding doesn't mean gone, right? It's not gone. Paul, um, the, again, same word for bound is attributed to Paul when he's in prison, and he wrote the, most of the New Testament. Okay? So it can't mean eliminated. We, so we shouldn't think if Satan is bound for a thousand years that he's eliminated. That doesn't seem to be the right understanding of what binding is. It's restrained, but not eliminated. Um, so in what, ways, in what ways was Satan bound, and how can we understand his binding? Let's, a few things maybe to consider. Um, first of all, it, it, happens, it has to happen at the Christ event. Okay, it has. I think it's got to be tied to the life, death, resurrection of Christ. Is when this binding occurs. Here, here's um, here, here's why I think this is this is done. First of all, we saw that in Revelation 12, right? In, in that centered around Jesus's birth is when Satan is cast out of heaven. Okay, look at Luke. Um, look at Luke 10:8. So, like, we have this. Um, oh shoot, that wasn't what I wanted. Did I skip it again? I have to start checking my notes. Yep, got to be 18. The, ret- the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, so th- we're moving on a path here, but like th- there has to be, there's something around Jesus' life, birth, death, resurrection, that otherwise we have the same concept of Satan falling like lightning, right? Just as we saw in Revelation 12. Let's look at uh, John 12, 30 to 32. Because this is still a falling of Satan right now. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to say he's limited. This, like the, the right. Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, or the Christ event is what limits Satan. And then we'll have to understand what, how does that mean, limited in what way. So let's, let's, if we can finish establishing that he's limited. John 12, um, this is Jesus talking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Okay? Again, impact to Satan in Jesus' uh, Jesus' birth, death, resurrection. Let's look at John 16, 11. Uh, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that if I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Not will be judged, not let's wait for until something else happens and then a thousand years and then he will be judged. Okay, these are relevant things to Christ's life. All right. Uh, let's look at Matthew. We looked at, uh, I, I alluded to this. Let's look at Matthew 12. Here we go. 
Um, Jesus is casting out, uh, he's talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he's casting out demons. Um, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So we agree that's what he's doing, right? Kingdom of God has come upon you. That's a problematic for a future kingdom. Also, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Same word, deo. Okay? Is Jesus doing that? That's our question. Did he bind the strong man and is he taking his goods? People. Yeah. I think he is. Okay? So, so our understanding of the binding of Satan happening during Christ's birth, death, resurrection? Yeah, I think that's what's happening. I think that's what he's calling us back to. I think this recapitulation in Revelation 21 is tossing us right back to Revelation chapter 12, back to the life, death, or excuse me, birth, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, in which Satan is bound. So if that's true, okay, and you don't have to accept that that's true, but I'm going with the premise that that's true because I'm the guy standing. Um, we need to know how he's bound. Right? Because if he's bound, if he's not gone, because he's not gone. The, the New Testament doesn't give us the option to think that he's destroyed. He's not destroyed. So in what ways is he bound? Here's the thoughts. We know that he's been cast out of heaven. No longer able to accuse the brothers, right? Revelation 12 tells us that. Okay? That's a deal. We met, now, that doesn't seem like a big of a deal to us because we're not there. Right. Okay? But that's a, that's a deal. Satan is no longer allowed. He was allowed back and forth between the earth prior to that point. Okay? That's how Job gets into his business. Because Satan's allowed up there, and what does he do? He accuses Job. Take your man here. Okay? So, that's gone. Satan's no longer allowed to do that. With Christ coming to earth and dying on the cross, the mystery of God's plan has been revealed. Everything the Old Testament was pointing to that didn't kind of have a fine point on That's why we kind of have trouble. We have to look back at some of, the, um, some of the things the Old Testament said, and we can see that they were fulfilled in Christ, but they wouldn't have been able to tell you that's exactly what was going to happen. Okay? This mystery of God's plan has been revealed. It's harder for him to deceive the nations. Okay? Not impossible. Okay? It's more difficult. We talked about this a little bit before, but death has been conquered. The thing that he could threaten you with is gone. The, thing that, the very thing that he used to be able to threaten people with is, is a sign of his own demise because it is through, remember we're looking back to Revelation chapter 12, okay, it's Christ's death on the cross and the fact that God's people would not shrink from death. Okay? That is how Satan is conquered. And so that's, that's baked into this. The thing that was his weapon now becomes and turns back on him. Okay? Bound. Bound. Okay? Um, if we look back in Revelation 20, the question is, is what is he bound? What is he being kept from? Okay. Well, let's look at what he does when he's released. All right. Um, he's to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their point: always war against the Lamb and, and his people. Right to destroy the church. So, what is he bound from? He will not destroy the church. Okay. All these things kind of play into our concept that the church will not be destroyed. Sometimes it's a, that's a thing that, the, that we we get obsessed with. We're like, heads up, just one more generation, the church will be destroyed. No. No, he's bound. That's not going to be destroyed. It's not going to be destroyed. It's something he is not capable of doing. Okay? That, that is, I think, the promise that we're otherwise seeing in this binding of Satan. We still have to deal with why he's released, though. That's weird. Okay? I got a couple of thoughts on that. But, but that's, that's, I think, the, the uh, overall picture that we're looking at in Revelation 21. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with some sort of weird 
a thousand year environment that we have to plug a lot of stuff into, okay, and speculate how it's going to be. To be honest with you, a lot of the talk about a thousand year environment after Jesus comes back looks a lot like Jesus hasn't come anywhere. Like if you if you've read the Left Behind series, like there's just a lot. Of, like it looks very much like our world today. Um, with, Satan might as well be bound here. For all, for all, there doesn't seem to be much of an impact. Okay, I think Jesus is reigning. He's he's been reigning. Okay, so he doesn't need an earthly kingdom to reign. He's been reigning. It's an already not yet. Okay, it's not to full fruition. Um, I think Satan has was bound at the same place that everyone else was defeated, which is Christ's birth, death, resurrection. Okay, it doesn't need to be a separate point in time in which something starts and then he's bound. All right. So I, I think we're recapitulating the same story, our Armageddon Part Three, because that's that's how John keeps showing us how he's dealing with how God's dealing with his enemies. Good? Not necessarily agree, but we understand that thought process of where all that stuff comes together. Okay. Um, release of Satan. There's, there's a few different options in here. Um, this is the hardest part of this particular brand of thinking. It's easier to deal with the release of Satan kind of from a premillennial standpoint, like if you believe in a literal thousand years, except for if you look at this from a chronological perspective, like I said, he would have to be released and deceiving the nations after Jesus has already come back. So it's actually still a difficulty from like if you believed in a literal thousand years. All right, potential release of Satan stuff. Um, it's possible that the abyss is just not his final resting place. Okay, he was. That's just where that's just where he was to be bound. Okay, uh, and then he otherwise has to be dealt with in some other fashion and taken somewhere else. Eh, okay. Um, right, because if you see that gets it gets coupled here, he comes down for Cameron's consumed evils. So he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they're tormented day and night for an, forever and ever. So, like thinking that that the abyss could be different from that, I don't like that's a stretch to me. It's possible, um, but although that's where the um, remember when our demon locusts came from, they came from the abyss that wasn't wasn't described as the lake of fire. Okay, so it could be two distinct places, possible. I don't love that, but it's possible. Okay. Um, here's, here was the random thought that, that occurred to me. So is it possible that, that God has used judgment for refining his people, right? Like it is, it is judgment to call people to repentance. And even at his hand, some of these things have happened. You're like, it's the angel, the same key to an abyss to release the demonic. So is it possible that God is using the release of Satan to otherwise propagate some of these judgments and calls to repentance? He's, God's, God's hand has been tied to a lot of the judgments and using demonic forces to bring those about throughout here. It happened very strongly in the uh, seals. Okay? Bowls. Bowls. Okay? That's just where those, those demonic locusts were sent by an angel of heaven, comes down, has the key, has the power over its sovereignty to release them, the demonic locusts, and that's what happens. They are released for his judgments and calls to repentance. Okay? Is it possible that, that he's using Satan in that manner? Because all these things, he, it's, it's him that releases Satan. Satan doesn't escape. Okay? It's God who releases Satan. Eh. There's some interesting things about that. I'm, I'm iffy on it. Okay? Another potential interaction. Um, there is, we, we talked about uh, Roman triumphs before, right? Okay? We were talking about this concept that... Um, if a Roman ruler, and this after after you start get to get to Caesars, to Julius and Augustus going forward, um, this this only happened to emperors, and uh, they would go conquer a nation, and they would bring the spoils of war back. And one of the things you would do is you would take uh, you would kind of march through the city on white horses, and uh, everyone would be gathering in white on either side of you, and you would uh, this captured enemy, you would lead bound in manacles, shackles, okay, bound up to the temple of uh, Mars. 
Um, and the people would be holding like crowns and stuff above your head. And then uh, you would lead them through kind of glorifying the victory that you have had okay, over your primary enemy. And then ultimately, that enemy would be dispatched with at the Temple of Mars. Is it possible that uh, this image that John is using is something that the Christians in Asia Minor would otherwise recognize as God putting Satan on display for his own triumph? I don't know. He's interacted with some of that Roman imagery before. Okay? Um, I think that's possible. Again, that's not desk calendar material for me. I'm not quite sure on it. But it would, it would otherwise help to explain what is like a real weird release of Satan. Because it says he's released, but it does not say he's unbound. Okay? It doesn't say anything about him being unbound or unmanacled, shackled, that kind of thought process. right? But if there's an imagery that he's participating in God's triumph, okay? just like um, the, the imagery would have come from a Roman emperor, eh, I think there's something compelling about that potential imagery about his release. You know what, though? Like, like I have one to ask you, like, what if we the generation that he released on right now? Because, like, I don't know, it just seems like he's everywhere right now. Like, you know, like, even though Jesus and God is in control, but it just seems like he's released already right now. Like, like every very moment, you know, like, and every generation. Like, that's that's true. That's true. Everybody looks back and says, like, this was worse than last. Um... And the truth, uh, you remember the story I was telling earlier about the putting the, you kill your dad and they put you in the sack with the dog and the cat and the snake? Yeah. Here's it, like, that's evil. That's evil business, right? Yeah. Rome used to do that if you killed your dad. That was the deal. You, they'd tie you up in a sack with those three and then they dump you in the river and then as you drown, the animals are obviously drowning and fighting and it's really awful, okay? People did some awful stuff. So the truth is, like, you can look at, there's a lot of generations where people will look back and say, oh, but this was... This was, this was worse, right? Like this, it always feels like that because that's what you're living in. Um, I would say that that some of, there's, there seems to be a couple of things that Revelation would attempt to answer. That one, that Satan's um, bound but not gone. So I mean, you still have kind of the the lasting effects of his of his efforts in the world. Um, also, some of that seems like it could be coming from God's hand as cost of repentance and judgment. I, you know, like it's not a, that's not out of the the realm of possibility, right? Yeah. Um, feel like it's way more shinier now like you know like it's like we going through something different than they was like I, I don't see that that's where I'm hesitant because I having not lived in a previous generation like almost all generations have that perspective you can you can hear guys talking about this has got to be the last generation of the church going back every generation for the past 50 like everyone thinks they were in the last generation because they look around and say this is bad this is bad, and I can see how this has a connection here. And a lot of that comes from, we, we think, on a very limited scale of our place in time. All right? And so, like, this has got to be it because I've not seen anything worse. But I didn't live 50 years ago, and I won't live 200 years from now. And so I may not have the right perspective for that. And I think maybe the point is, is that it isn't our, um, we don't have to understand that. Um, as a specific point in time, right? Like it's not, it hasn't been relevant in Revelation so far and it probably doesn't carry relevance for us now because ultimately it's communicating again things over broad amounts of time. Um, if, if that thousand years represents kind of a non-literal amount of time but the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, um, then the impacts of a bound Satan otherwise trying, to, uh, still having an effect on the world and judgment and calls to repentance from Jesus, those are going to persist throughout all those. And so they might take different forms because as we advance in technology or society Comes different, they will take different forms, right? But like, like that kind of that kind of thought process, though, has probably existed, you know, forever. They, in fact, there was a, there was a great. We talked about this a little bit in the end times class. Like, there was a great thought that uh, year one thousand would do it because they took a, a thousand, a literal reign of one thousand, um, coming from Revelation, and said year one thousand's got to be the end of everything. And of course, it wasn't. 
because uh, we're still around, but they, they baked in a lot of that same stuff. Look where the society's gone. Look how we're treating people. Look at where God's people are falling away. Look at the desecration of the church. All been kind of the same thought process forever. And so um, it feels, it's unique to us, but it probably isn't unique in the broad, broad scheme of, of humanity would be my, my general reaction to that. Yeah, because I was just thinking about like how knowledge just took off. Like, like it just seemed like it's getting close. Even though man won't know the time, and Jesus don't know the time, but it just seemed like the more that man figure out, like it's not much that we can figure out after this. Like just think about like what technology going like. Man, heart is not pure, so it's like so you, the more you we think about things, the more we come up with. So here's the thing, you probably could have surprised the guy in the year 1200 that thought the exact same thing, right? Like he thought, there's, there's, we've got to be reaching our limit of what we can come through. And I think the, the point is, is like from a broad perspective, is that um, we're, we're still not supposed to have an inclination of when something has happened. The point is to call to faithfulness regardless in the circumstance, right? A call to perseverance regardless. And so there is no fruit in thinking, hey, the time is near, except for... Jesus has put in our mind that I could come at any time. The time is always near. And so there's not a relevance of a progression that says it's getting worse or it's getting better. That's a non-revelation distinction. The revelation distinction is I could come at any time. These are universal truths about how people interact with me, how about calls to judgment and repentance and the impact of Satan on the world. And so we just, Christians live a straight line and feast famine, good or bad, all things Christ who strengthens me type of process, which is we don't care. Okay, we live our, our our Tuesday looks like a Tuesday, whether it's on fire or whether it's sunny outside. We don't care. We kind of live in the same way, you know. Uh, all right, all right. Anyway, that's uh, that's my debatable, slightly heretical thought on uh, Revelation twenty one, non literal thousand years. I think Christ will come back when He wants to come back, and things will be done because that's what that's what He do. Um, I, there would have to be three if there's a literal thousand years. I think this is a nice recapitulation. He acts like he's always acted, non-literal number, because he's used figurative numbers all the way through Revelation. I think all that makes sense uh, within the context here. Uh, all right, we got to book it. Um, let's see. Everyone's throwing the record fire. Done. All right, here we go. 11. 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I think this is another recapitulation of 27 through 10. Okay, we're looking at the same time frame as the defeat of Satan. I don't think this happened. It has to happen directly after that. It's the same broad process. Okay? Um, you know what's interesting here? And again, uh, don't put away heretical notebooks yet. Um, I actually think this is describing only the judgment of rebellious humanity. I think the C is kind of our indication for that. Okay? Great and small, it doesn't matter who you are. Okay? Great and small, you're going to be standing in, in front of the throne, uh, throne of God. Um, but the C is giving up their dead. And death and Hades, that's where all these folks are coming from. Okay? That's not really all, comp- it's not all encompassing. Um, and the book is opened, and they're specifically judged about who is not in the book of life. Book of life is a positive connotation, right? Um, we saw this registration actually show up in the description to the churches. Okay? You'll have your name written in the book of life, the citizens register. Um, okay? But like, this actually seems to, uh, seems to have a connotation that is rebellious humanity who was left who's um, submitting to the judgment of God, because the truth is, is my belief would be, um, is that the church is not necessarily being judged based upon their deeds, but 
based upon your relationship to Jesus. Like there's a name in the book of life. Jesus, and you're associating with Jesus. That's you. Okay? The judgment... Paul does describe a, um, a judgment... It's not a judgment of deeds. It's like a, um, it's like a comprehension of deeds um, for the faithful. But this judgment here, for me at least, reads in the connotation that it is those who tried to... Basically, who tried to get to God on their deeds alone. Okay? On their own righteousness... They will be judged so that in fairness they will be shown that they've fallen short and they will be cast into the lake of fire. Okay? Um, but this, it is not the same experience for the people of Jesus. Jesus is the rightful entry to heaven. Um, I get in because I know him and he vouches for me. My deeds are not going to show up as part of that uh, relation that otherwise shows me that I deserve to be there. It's my associating with Christ that will do it. Um, but it, like I said, Paul doesn't actually give us the ability to back completely away from um, Christian deeds being looked at, um, but it doesn't carry the same connotation of judgment. Okay. Um, good, good, good. And uh, they won't see the second death. This is highly debatable on the concept of second death. Um, I, I would, I would render this as saying um, your first, um, uh, your first resurrection is basically your physical death, um, and then you're going on to a permanent, uh, permanent existence. Second death is you're putting into the lake of fire after your physical death. It's explained as the first resurrection to people that belong to Jesus. But it's equivalent in, in um, concept to your first death. It's just we go to resurrection and they go to death. Okay? Um, that would be how I would uh, render that particular concept. Dave Harris likes to say that you're in the waiting room with Jesus. And then you get to go to, you know, you're done waiting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the right concept. First and second death. Yeah. Yep. I think it's the right concept. Uh, yeah, and to be honest with you, the theology behind understanding Abraham's bosom, how Hades functioned before Jesus, uh, I, I have questions on that. I'm still working that one out. There's, yeah, there's some interesting parts of that. Um, Revelation 21. What do I got? Oh, we gotta, we, we're going to move. Uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That word is, um, is kainos for new. Um, so that doesn't... Um, so yes, yes. So when we think new, we think the concept of something like brand new, where this has the um, this has more of the context of like a um, of made new, okay, recreated. What's that? Restored. Yeah, yeah, of like a restoration type of thought process, right? So not necessarily something created brand new, but something that is restored, which would otherwise fit our concept of understanding that the earth is refined by fire. What Satan what Satan did in the garden was not enough to taint completely God's creation that he must dispatch with it completely. Um, he will, it will simply go through restoration process. Creation groans for that, not to be destroyed, but to be restored to something before um, sin entered the world. And as man goes through that process, creation goes through the same process. Okay, that's, that's kind of our uh, distinction of that word new, because the word new is a little difficult. There's like 14 different definitions in the, in the dictionary. This, again, has this object of kind of a restoration as opposed to like a brand new. Are we going to literal here? Are we going, are we going to go see a literal uh, new heaven or are we going no, no, I wouldn't anticipate being able to take it in literally. Yeah. Because there'll be no snorkeling in heaven because the sea was no more. The sea was no more. That's right. Snorkeling is dead gone. Here, that is the river. Maybe he, he he will put a river in the middle. I, maybe he just doesn't call it a sea. It's a technical distinction the Lord is making. <laughs> yeah. Why is the sea no more? We talked about this. Yeah. Yeah. Trouble, chaos, evil. Right. That was our sea. It's gone. Gone. Sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, hold on a second. Can you marry a city? What have cities been so far? People. Yeah, groups of people. Groups of people. Okay? So this does not have a tie. We've got to be careful, right? We, there's a particular piece of ground in the Middle East that we may put a little too much effort into. Okay? 
but well, I take, let me scratch that. We should put a lot of effort into that because nobody gets to heaven without Jesus. Okay, there's nothing holy about that ground. Um, this is a heaven that is otherwise being given or restored from God. We have this picture of it coming from heaven. It is not a particular piece of ground of which we are to consider holy above other pieces of ground. Okay? As a matter of fact, Jerusalem was condemned, if you recall. Uh, Jesus weeps over it before the temple falls. Okay? And it also has the connotation of Babylon earlier in Revelation. Okay? So uh, that is the mission field. Israel, Jerusalem, mission field, just like everywhere else. Okay? Um, prayers that, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is... This is the whole path of Scripture right here. It's beautiful. And, it's, and this is not the first place we've seen it. There's probably 15, 20 different places in the Old Testament where God is making this promise. Okay? I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you. I will dwell among man. This my home. God's home will be with my people. Okay? It's a beautiful picture. And the new heaven and new earth. Okay? It, it, it gives us this concept of God um, tabernacling. Okay? Or, or residing among his people. Um, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, this one's a little bit tricky because the truth is, if we said there's no crying, why is he wiping away tears? Okay, the point, first of all, he's calling back to Isaiah. There's a, I think it's Isaiah 62, Isaiah 60 something. Um, but so like, this is not a new concept in scripture of him wiping away tears. Okay, um, it does probably point us to the concept that says, I don't know that we're going to be entirely um, uh, blind to the circumstances that got us to our new covenant with Christ, okay? our new relationship with God. Um, I don't know that we, we won't recognize that there were people there that we wanted to be there that aren't. Okay? I think that's a reality. Or yeah, then they usually choose that. Yeah, that's right. You're going to be surprised by some guy. Like, oh, I got made it. Um, so... So, I, so I, I think there's a concept that there are tears to wipe, but, but God will do that, right? But God will provide that, that comfort. Um, there, that's, that's a real intimacy thing, though, right? Like, think of that relationship. Like, think of what we've seen God do, the, the type of acts that God has had upon people, and then this picture of dwelling, having a home with God. And, and like, it's a very intimate thing to reach out to someone's face and wipe a tear from their cheek. And that, that's God's description that he wanted us to have of our relationship with him in kind of this new heaven, new earth, this new relationship that comes from God. Like, this is a beautiful picture. And the, the thing that's, that's, it depends on who you are. Some people are able to hold this better than others, right? But like, like the range of emotion and the range of like aspects of God's character that come through Revelation is daunting. It's daunting. The same God that gives this image of Jesus trampling on people, their, their blood rising up to a horse's bridle for what they've done to his people, has this same God reaching out and wiping a tear from your face. Like it's a, there's just a, a broad range that, that humanity, I feel like we're, John's always using language that pulls us to a breaking point and the emotions that, uh, I don't know, like ladies are generally better at. Uh, but like I can't, I, I have trouble holding both of these things. How can these, I know they're both true, but like I don't feel them well. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see actually in that time what that, what that feels like, emotionally what that is like for our ability to kind of comprehend the things that God seems to hold in a real balance. And we're like, how can you be angry? <laughs> how can you be angry and so loving at the same time? Like we don't get it. We don't, we don't work in those. We work in extremes. We've, we've kind of dichotomized our, our um, emotions in a way that God doesn't have to do. He can feel, he can feel grace 
and mercy and justice fully at the same time, and we have trouble balancing them. We, we take a sign and we say we love you, and then we beat you up with the sign. Like, those are all, those are our mechanisms for showing people stuff. So, I don't know, that, it would just be an interesting circumstance. It says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's not a new promise in scripture either. Okay. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Can you see it? That's uh, from Isaiah. Also, he said, write this down. I like this. John's been, John's been doing this the whole time. He's like needing reminded. Hey, write this down. This too. That's right. Now hold, hold tight. I saw you worship that angel earlier. I just need to reorient your ability to get this correct. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, he said to me, it is done. We've seen that already. It's complete. It, that was the previous time we saw it. Well, it gives a little bit of stuff to Jesus on the cross, right? It's not the same word, right? To tell is what he says on the cross. This isn't this. But there's a sense of completion to it. The last time he said it was in the midst of the, of, uh, the final uh, bowl's judgments. Okay? Bowl judgments. Here, it's the restoration of all things. Like the, the creation of... Um, uh, of this new kind of interaction. And we say new, we like again, restored, kind of has the images of what God promised, but it's to its fullest effect of our relationship with God. Um, and, it's, and this is complete. And he follows up with, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We've seen that already in Revelation. We'll see it again in, in Revelation 22. Um, the beginning and the end to the conquerors, excuse me, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Okay. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Uh, it's, it's a re, if we would not overuse our word recapitulation, but he's got even closer. Okay, it's not just they will be my people, he will be my son. He's gotten even closer to you as an individual. But as for, shoot, no, it's not done though. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, here's what's interesting. Even here, we can't, this can't be a chronology, right? Because if everything was done, and he's just talking about the new creation, what is this? This doesn't need to be here for this, okay? Truths throughout time, Right? Okay, wrong time, like broad timeline. We're being communicated true things about God and his relationship with people, but it, it is always calling us back to how we behave in the present. Right? We can't lose that about revelation. Okay, it's not prophecy for the sake of prophecy. It's not future for the sake of future. It's in light of the truths uh, from the different angle that I'm showing you, in light of what you know will be, the, be happening. Okay, how do you live today? All right, so we're still being called back to those things. There's eight here. That's weird. I wanted seven, right? I wanted seven here. Um, what's interesting, though, is that cowardly is specifically, it's a specific term that means um, in battle, someone who is fighting for one side and then runs away in the midst of the battle. Okay? This still probably speaks to the church because the overarching conversation here in Revelation was perseverance of the saints. Persevere. I know what's coming. Persevere. Persevere. That cowardly is found in, in a lot of those other... You know, you've seen the faithless, detestable, murders, sexual, immoral... That, you know, you've yep. seen all those. Cowardly here is... Is a new one. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, it's, and what's interesting is like um, all these seem to be tied to the primary things that were tied to the remember the um, uh, the frogs spitting like the lies. Okay, the idolatry, the sexual morality tied to Babylon. Like these are these are deceits that the church is prone to. Okay, things. So this isn't just people that are outside of God. These are things that the church is susceptible for. Okay. All right. Covers everybody. What's that? The last one, liar, kind of covers everybody. No, that's true. That's true. What's that? Because all men are liars. Yeah. Well, Actually, I, we don't... 
we might not know where recovery or detestable, we definitely will not murder the sexually immoral or sexual idolaters, but when he gets lighter, he gets well. Right? Truth is, like, yeah, and so I think he's talking about like, all these things as. Um, uh, again, it's it's a bit of a um, a disassociation on, on on what side you're on, right? This is a full category, a list of basically not God's people versus God's people type of thing. Because you're, you're right, because you're right. Uh, verse nine. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, "Come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb." Now we've already that's already happened once, right? Okay, he's telling the same story again. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again, I don't think we're supposed to be thinking city here. Cities have been people. We've got groups. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Literal, literal city? Probably not, right? Like, we don't have a lot of grounds to literal city, right? But we, but we start to see what our city is made up of, okay? We got, you got your 12... Um, <clears throat> the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, 12 apostles, kind of bakes into our thought of maybe the 24 elders being part of that. Although, see, here's, here's the problem with literal things. I think 12 apostles of the Lamb, I actually want the 12th guy. As opposed to thinking of a completion, which is probably where I'm supposed to be, I'm like, Judas ain't there. You tell him Matthias, come on. You know, we don't really hear about Matthias. He's, he gets to be one of the foundational guys. Maybe Paul got ebbed in. Say, that's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. It's completion. It's the 12 number related to basically both of these groups of people that we may have separated come together in this God's people, holy city, New Jerusalem type of thought process. Okay, um, and, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. It's length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So I'll tell you, um, this takes us back to our understanding of the Holy Holies. Okay, the Holy Holies was a was a cube, all right. Um, equal, equal on all sides, um, on all three three sides. And the Holy of Holies were again where heaven and earth intersect. Now this picture kind of comes together as this is the dwelling place of God, the heaven, new heaven, new earth, same place where God and His people both reside. Okay, makes sense. It's kind of a, a communication with this. It's not a measurement. Nobody cares. Okay, it's not it's not a direct measurement. Um, talking about Jesus. What do you mean? Isn't Jesus the Holy of Holies here on earth? I mean. When you look about the Word of God, you do First John, John 1, 1, the Word was with God, that refers to the Holy of Holies that's come to earth. And we were going to be with Jesus, this is a description more or less of, the, of Jesus, isn't it? Well, so if it's a description of Jesus as the city, then what do we do with uh, the name of the twelve tribes as the foundation, the names of the apostles as the walls, right? Throne, I mean, are we hovering around the throne and we're the Holy of Holies, we're hanging out with Jesus, and we're in the place of, of the new... Heaven and New Earth? I mean, I'm trying to describe it myself because it sounds like John's on acid right now. So That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to reconcile it in my own brain, but, you know. So, so I, I think he's, I, I think actually this, this, this makes more sense as the, um, as Jerusalem, which otherwise we're supposed to understand in God's people, and you're made up of like this group of, two groups of people, right? That comes together. We are, um, I would say that we are become the stand-in for the Holy of Holies because of the provision of the Holy Spirit. We are where heaven and earth are stacked. And so that image is what would otherwise carry me to think that that's where it lies. Um, although again, I, I mean, I'm with you on the acid trip. I just like the descriptions here would otherwise point me. To... Yeah, but I don't, need, I don't think Christ needs a foundation. They're talking foundational here. They're laying out you know, the foundation for all time. This is for, the for God's people. 
This is the scripture that I get, I think. For me, that's what I'm looking at. It. Well, also, Genesis is talking about the garden of two people. Now we got a bunch of people, we got to sit around the garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't. I don't quite connect with what you're saying. <laughs> well, it's just a completion. You just start out with a garden. Yeah. Two people. That's all you need. Now we got all these numbers of people. We have to sort of. Yeah. So the, I mean, they're obviously figure numbers, right? Like we're twelve thousand. We're twelves. We got twelves everywhere. Always tied to people of God. Completions surrounding by people. Like again, that's that's what would tie me to this. Um, what would generally make me think that it's people, God's people stuff. That's what would tie me to that. Groove on his acid, and it just seems weird. <laughs> no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's nothing like the other John that we know in the Gospels. It's the two, you know, they're two different authors here. One's tripping, one's kind of solid, you know. Yeah, but you do like to reconcile, but I, I see this. You just like to think he's a different guy. <laughs> he saw the Holy of Holies and he freaked out. Yeah. Well, I'm well, would you? I'm sure I would. I would too. I'm just saying. That's what I'm thinking. Go ahead. I'm pretty sure this this is the same John that was uh, uh, on peyote when he saw the uh, uh, sheet coming down and uh, all meats are clean. Well, that's Peter, though. Oh, that's Peter. Peter was the sheet, yeah. Uh, and that's true. He napped in the sun. So I feel like that does that to a guy. <laughs> yeah, that was Peter, though. He gets sun drunk and he starts seeing He does. He was leaping on the roof. I guess he wants to. <laughs> so something to think about. <laughs> Right, here's the deal, though. There's a reason that only 30%, was it, like 30% of John's gospel actually interacts with some of those. The rest is completely new. He's, he's always been a little bit of a, he's a wild card. So hold on, we, we don't have time for a tangent here. Hold on. We're in the middle of 21. Stop it. You want to be here until 9 o'clock, you all keep it up. Almost there. Foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, second sapphire, third agate, fourth emerald, fifth onyx, sixth carnelian, seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth uh, chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. A couple of these, they actually don't know what they are. They just took the word that was there and just made it into a legit gem. Uh, Twelve gates were twelve pearls. Now here's the deal. You've heard people say pearly gates before, right? So we get this image of a gate with like pearls on it. That is not the description that's here. Okay, Gates made out of a single pearl. A giant pearl, okay, which, of which there's a gate carved out of it. Yeah, okay, this is not a literal, this is, yeah, yeah, acid trip, or this is so crazy of a, look, of a thing that we're supposed to understand there's such monumental uh, jewels everywhere. Notice that some of these jewels, ca- like, carry from the throne, okay? We have the same description at Jasper Carnelian describing the throne of God, like this, the, all these jewels and stuff. Okay, says, uh, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There we go. There's our temple. Uh, and um, th- this is what your, uh, your average commentator or a guy that thinks he's real smart would say, uh, Christology is very high. Okay, when you see Christ otherwise put on the same level as God, Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are coupled together here as our temple. All right. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Interesting. First time we've seen a positive connotation of kings of the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. And its gates will never be shut by day. Also interesting. We got a bunch of gates made out of sweet pearl. We don't bother to close. Okay. Which speaks to the openness of the, of the circumstance, right? Okay. All are welcome. Again, don't think of this end of the world necessarily. Think of it as a promise throughout time. Okay, openness to the gates, but also we are so not afraid of people just running in there. We leave the gates open. There's no enemies. Uh, well, again, I'm not sure this is this has to have in a definite into the world. Like it's supposed to be a truth throughout time, right? 
That's why the, ga- the gates are open for two things. One, we have nothing to be afraid of with somebody coming in. But two, it's also open. Okay? People enter freely. Uh, correct. Right? And, and that's the point. That's the point. Okay? Um, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. There we go. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is also not only a revelation concept. The concept of books um, containing, uh, like, books of life and stuff, um, there are at least three or four different places in the Old Testament that that same concept is there. Okay? Um, do I think it's a literal book? No. I don't have any reason to think that. I think it's a, there's a record, a citizen registry of which God knows who's there and who isn't. 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Brings us back to what picture? What's that? Uh, yeah. Eden. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It brings us back to Eden. Okay? Everything is being restored to God's original intention. Okay? Uh, you have a river going through the city. Uh, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Interesting. It's interesting to understand the, the notion of healing of the nations inside this kind of picture, um, this picturesque of, of restoration. Um, I don't know. There's, there's, there's some interesting ways we can go with that. Maybe I'll post something about that on Facebook with some thoughts there, but we probably don't have time to dwell on it. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb. Again, Christology's high. He's tied to the things together. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. They, they will reign forever and ever. That's our kingdom of priests. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. Have we heard that before? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It happened earlier in Revelation. Okay. Keeps the words of the prophecy. Remember, reinforce our understanding. Prophecy can't just be future. Where You're supposed to keep the words. Obey them. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Almost the exact same response. Almost the exact same response. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Have we heard something like that before? Do you remember where? It's the opposite, actually. Isn't it to seal it up and don't tell anybody? From Daniel. From Daniel. Yeah. John is... John is there's a certain part to seal it up and don't tell anybody. So th- there's two interactions here. The first one is, is Daniel where he actually says the opposite. There's a point, part where he says, seal that up, don't tell anybody. We saw that in the seven thunders. You guys remember our seven thunders? The reason we can't have a roadmap is because there were seven thunders of judgment that happened and he said, seal that up, don't tell anybody. Okay, but then we see that like at the end of all this, um, we're getting the opposite saying, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. What is that? What is that? No, no, not that. No, that's all right. This is a reflection of scripture. Are your kids being naughty? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> Talking to China, I think. That's awesome. I'm way too involved in myself to pay attention to what y'all are doing. So anyway, <laughs> so he said. So you're saying this is not along and not with your timeline? Mm-hmm. That they're still Satan's still doing his thing, and that God's doing his thing. 
and is the completion of everything hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that, that Revelation never gets to the end. I'm saying we never see a finality to the book of Revelation. Because you notice every time we think that something is the end, there's some sign of advocation that says either there's a last chance for somebody, or someone needs to repent, or we care about somebody that's evil. Like, it doesn't end. There's not a stop to it. Because that's not the point. That's not the point of Revelation, right? The point of Revelation is to say, here's some truths that I need you to understand from my perspective. Okay? And that will inform how you live today. And so all these big things that we want to be the end, that's not the point. Not, so, so that's why he's, he can't seal up the words of the prophecy. It's why you have to obey it. But this, this verse 11 is interesting. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Why is he saying that? Is that the last part of it? Because that's not on here. Uh, 11. Revelation twenty two eleven. 11. Our stop said, do not seal up the word. Oh, shoot, I didn't print out the rest of the book of Revelation. <laughs> there's, not, hey, there's not meant to be an end, April. Okay, that's my bad. <laughs> so you stopped writing at that time. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, did I violate the do not seal up the words of the prophecy? Shoot, game. <laughs> I'm in the business on this one, okay? Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. You guys want to think on that? I'm here, here's the deal. I'm going to leave that with you. Think on that. What is it doing here? Like, why here? And what does it mean? Put the think on that. <laughs> we, we, don't have, we don't have time. <laughs> if I don't see anything interesting on Facebook later this week, maybe I'll see if I can help. All right. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. He's still calling us for our impact today. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Boys, see, he still put your... Um, he was handing out white robes earlier, and now he's got you doing the laundry. Interesting. Like, it's, it's, it's interesting, our understanding of, um, of what we do. Of what we do. And so, like, dumping all, like, what we do versus what God does. Like, God still does the bulk of the work here, but, like, Jesus still kind of seems to be laying some of this stuff and saying, I care what you do. Maybe that's the right way to think of it. The safest way I can get there without jacking with my theology one way or the other on I'm saved only because Jesus saved me, but I'm called to good works is to say Jesus cares about what you do. That, that I can say for certain in the book of Revelation. Okay. Maybe the Holy Spirit's got to parse that out of what that means for you in your life. Okay? But, like, he very much seems to care about your deeds and care about what you're doing. Go ahead, Dan. Well, I think it just goes back to when Jesus washed the apostles' feet. He says, you were clean when I accepted you, but now that you walk through the life, you're doing stuff, you get dirty, now you've got to get clean again. But you are all, you're clean as far as Jesus is concerned. We're going to wash life, this life off of us. We're just passing through I think there's there, there's a lot of interesting images in the Bible that kind of play with that, um, and I think I think it's um, that's not necessarily a work out your salvation with fear and trembling type of thing, but like it's a um, maybe it's just that we're just a bit of a post enlightenment world. Okay, we got a lot of stuff in our minds. Okay, things that we want to think but don't have to have tangible effects, and I think we've we've got to um, maybe Revelation in the Bible in general calls us to something more tangible than that. Um, so I don't know, Holy Spirit thing. Um, 
Outside, okay, see, here we go. So that may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs. It's still an open invitation. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practice falsehood. You notice he didn't have the cowards in this one. It's the same list, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Just no cowards. Just know the people turn around from battle. I, I wonder if that is the uh, evildoer still do evil, filthy. Wait a minute, something to think about. I, Jesus, have set my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Did John know he was writing the final book of the canon? No. Probably not. So just be careful where you take that. Yeah. Okay? Don't, don't, uh, be careful with, like, Revelation. You don't take away from it. Okay? I, I can't back away from the things that God is promising. Okay? But um, just be careful. Like, he didn't know the position of the book of Revelation is the end of the canon. I'm not, that's probably not what he's targeting. Okay? Um, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Standard closing of a letter. So be it. Amen. Amen. There you go. Hey, 829. What was your question about the evildoer? Why is it, what, what does he mean? And why is it there? Oh, were you only guys celebrating my 829? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Wait, yeah, hold on. <laughs> Wait, that means I got an extra 10 minutes. Sit still. <clears throat> um, oh. Evildoer. What's that? Commandments is going to be in heaven. The law is going to be in Why are you saying that? Because it's been with us. It's the word of God. It's been with us all along. There's, there's no reason to think it's not going to be there. It's like the souls of man lives forever and ever. And so to think that, for me to think that heaven will be sinless is a stretch. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. Because why would we have the need for that law? Well, they, right, but you... you've why are they standing outside banging on the doors? Why? You know... Because, because I don't think that's a point in time. That's like that's why, uh, and I'm not I'm not entirely sure on the law business. Uh, and you're, you've banked the second thing on the truth of the law business. <laughs> so let's um, let me see if I can uh, poorly wrap this up. So I think, I think go ahead. Where, I think where he's talking about when the evil doers still do evil, it's just like keep on keeping on. It's just it's going to. Life's just going to keep going as it goes. You know, evil's still going to be evil. Filthy's still going to be filthy. Holy's going to still, you know. Yeah, I think he already know your heart, so he know who really wants. So right. People going to do what they're going to do, but it's up to you to change if yeah. you know what's going wrong or whatnot. Okay. I'm going to let you guys flesh that out. I, I, it sniffs right. It sniffs right. I think that's what it is. Oh, okay. <laughs> Could they really not keep the law in the Old Testament? Did they? Did they really keep the law through the through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ all along? I mean, we always assume that they couldn't. They couldn't make. It. They couldn't perform the law. Mm-hmm. But, but all along, they were performing the law with with Christ, with God, with the, with the Spirit. All along, they were doing the law that was given to them through the grace of Jesus Christ, even in the Old Testament. It's, so we have Revelations, which is like, it just kind of 
ramps it up. It's like the end of a, of a long symphony, and then it, they do redo all the songs again. Little bit, little kids to it, and they go, here's, here's our life. It's not going to change. It's not going to be much different. The law's the law. I'm here to supply for you. You may not be able to keep the law, but I'll keep the law. You, you know what's interesting about that connection, and I'm, I'm still not there with you completely, um, but, but, but if you notice, you notice his list of who's not in there, points much to the uh, the Ten Commandments, right? You're liars, you're all idolaters, sexually immoral. Like, your list very much is still contained in that in that concept. I, I'm interested in more in what you're talking about. But I think this is more of kind of like the Jesus in your face. Keep going like you're going. I'm, I'm going to come. I, I laid it out for you. But, you know, do what you're going to do. Pick your side. But I'm coming. Behold, I'm coming soon. And I'm going to judge everybody. So. I'm not disagreeing with you. I think it's still, I think it's still the free will of it. Well, he doesn't have to judge anyone because we make the choice. We want to be with Jesus or we want to reject him. Right. He set the terms. Everybody's going to make it. Yeah. yeah. Did you have something, Jeremy? Well, I'm only half putting this up because I can't formulate a clear thought. <laughs> But the image that keeps coming into my mind, and I'm not even sure how this relates, but you know when, uh, was it Absalom or whatever? Uh, it was going after David, and David's going out of the city, and there's this dude that curses him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'll let him curse. You know, either either I deserve it, or or maybe the Lord will have pity on me. I, I think that, I think maybe there's still grace in heaven, free will and grace in heaven. And that, uh, you know, we'll still continue to be refined because we'll never, I don't know that we'll, I don't know. Jesus is the atonement. He's the one that makes us act yep. one. So I don't, uh, I, I, I can't flesh that out anymore. Yeah. No, no, I hear you. I feel like put you two guys in a room and we can talk this stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if we only need grace because the law is still there. Yeah, you guys are, yeah, we're going to do this. <laughs> So, um, so let me wrap Revelation up. First of all, um, this, 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 I think if we can recognize as we've gone through it, there's a lot here. Okay, you're going to get six months from now, you're going to reread Revelation, and you're going to be lost again. It happens. Okay, I've taught this before. Now I did it to the youth, so I gave them the very things that they would argue with me about, and then I reread it for studying for this, and I thought, ah, oh, crap, I've lost all this completely. <laughs> I have to start over. So um, just know that that will likely happen to you. That's okay. Um, secondly, this isn't something for us to be afraid of. This was meant as a, as hope. Okay, it was meant as hope for those churches in Revelation. It's meant as hope for us. Our, all the times where, we, where we're sitting and saying, when will you avenge? How can, how can there still be evil here? How can these things continue to be? How can I see all these, all these people who love and follow you and their physical lives are threatened? And God says, I have a broader perspective. I'm go-. He didn't have to share it with us. He could have just said, I'm God, shut up. Okay? He sh- that was a perspective that he's intentionally shared with us to understand a little bit of what's going on behind the scenes, what's causing it, where it's going, how it will be dealt with. Okay? Okay? It will very much cause into question my comfort in God's sovereignty in the world and says, can I still look at that and say he is good? Can I still look at the things that go wrong and say he is just? The angels in heaven do. The people of God here do. Okay? I, I, I can at least know what I'm being called to. Um, I have some of my theology and revelation incorrect i just don't know what it is that's the truth okay as you keep keep studying the stuff in revelation where you find i'm wrong the bible is better right than me being right okay throw it out 
All right. I, my guess is I'll come back here six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, and things that I believe about this book should change. Okay? Because I'm working to the best I got, but I'm a fallible human. All right? So don't feel like you can't discard something. Where the Bible is right, I would rather acquiesce to that. All right? If one thing in here blows up something I think, then we'll relook at the whole thing. Because the Bible's good. And the Bible tells the truth in that, right? So um, I gave you the best I got. Um, but I'm still, I'm still pursuing this. And I would encourage you guys to do the same thing. And let this do, if it doesn't do anything else, let this do this. Open up the rest of the Bible with this. There was, there's a lot to Revelation, I get that, okay? But like, we went pretty deep with it. But we, we basically went through all of Scripture in the book of Revelation, did we not? We were everywhere. All right? The Bible is that deep everywhere. It just is. Say, let the story of God play out full timeline. All right? Let's spend a long time in something. That's all right. Dig it up. Check, check verses, not because you're, you want to be like a, a studious guy with his glasses on. It's because we love Jesus and we're going to look for him everywhere. All right? So let this open up every book that you touch. You don't have to do it like I do it. I get a little, I get a little blowhard and drag on. I'm with you two weeks later. All right? But, but let it do that. Let it open up how you study, how you read. Do it with the partner, though. Trying to do that stuff on your own is hard because you don't have a, you don't have a thing to, to bounce off stuff. Okay? You go off on a wild goose chase and you don't have any idea. I'll leave the Facebook group open. Okay, if you've got questions, let's talk about them. Um, I'm willing, like I said, I'm willing for what I think to be refined by my community that, that surrounds me. I'm, I'm encouraged by that. So, I will leave you to Revelation. Go stare at your friends. Check the heretic notebook for things that I said that's not right. And uh, you guys are free to go. Thanks for hanging out with me. Thanks, Ben. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you.